Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is available as a paperback and audiobook, and the ebook is free. Yes, free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. For more information about that, plus more importantly, for interviews with thousands of authors, literary agents, editors, all the world's finest people, head to middlegradeninja.com. And that is all the intro we have time for tonight. We have got none other than Gregory McGuire with us. Mr. McGuire, how are you this evening? I am very well, Rob, and it's a great pleasure and an honor to be uh, invited into your august company. So thank you for um, thank you for extending the invitation. Uh, I'm happy to see you there in front of shelves and shelves and shelves of the world's finest books, some of which um, I'm sure I've read. If my eyes were better, I might be able to pick them out. But uh, isn't it nice to be able to have company with people who like to read? people who, who consider that books are their friends. Uh, it's really nice to meet you and to meet your audience that way too. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about myself to start out with. Uh, I am Gregory McGuire and I use my full name Gregory, not Greg, uh, because it was a family name, it was the last name, uh, my mother's last name in fact. So uh, I'm a writer. I have been writing professionally for 44 years this year, which means my books have been in print uh, uh, for 44 years. Uh, and I write for adults and for children. I started my career writing for children, publishing my first book when I was 24. And after 16 years of writing uh, children's chapter books, as we call them in the trade, uh, I made a conversion and a switch, and I wrote my first adult novel, which is still my best-known book, the, the novel called Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West. That book, as some of you may know, uh, inspired a big, splashy, noisy Broadway show. <laughs> and I love it, love the show, uh, love the sort of relative uh, comfort that its success afforded me because it brought my name to the attention of um, even more of the reading audience than I had garnered on my own scene. And since then, I have continued to write books for adults and books for children, not exactly alternately, but it more or less works out like that. I do a children's book, then I do an adult novel. And so now, after 44 years, I'm closing in on just about having done 40 books in 44 years, um, which is pretty cool. It's an amazing average where, where we'd all be so productive. <laughs> I, have, I have the most recent one in manuscript right here, um, The Witch of Maracour. And it is a, um, it's an adult novel. And it's, I haven't even sent it to my agent yet. I was working on it this evening and I'll probably send it to my agent later in the week. Uh, so I'm still working, I'm still happy about it all. Uh, but I am, you know, white of beard and thin of pate. And so I do wonder how many more stories I have in myself and how many more of them will be worth dredging out and delivering to a reading audience, adults or children. 
And about that, I can't make any further comment because I don't know. None of us know what our work lives really are going to entail from beginning to end. I just know that at the moment I'm continuing to work and continuing to like it. 40 books over 44 years. If I were a betting man, I'd say there's probably another book. <laughs> probably down the line. I mean, have you, is this a recent thought that how many more stories do I have? Or is this something you've been plagued with all along? No, well, I haven't been plagued with it. Indeed, for many years, uh, I used to say that for me, story ideas came like airplanes looking for, for a landing strip. Uh, I would be busy, you know, to confuse metaphors, I'd be busy out there typing on the runway, uh, trying to, you know, signal in another book so that the ideas that were circulating around and, you know, waiting for clearance to land could have a chance to land. And uh, some of them had a lot of fuel and they kept circling for years until it was their turn and I could bring it in. Uh, but as I've gotten older, I do find that there seems to be less and less uh, noise on the horizon and fewer and fewer buzzing gnats up there waiting to be, uh, to be netted and, and dragged down. That doesn't mean that there aren't any. It may mean that I have to start looking for them in other places. It may be that I should maybe try a different, uh, a different medium. Maybe I should try writing for the theater, which I've always been curious about. Maybe I should try writing a film script. Uh, maybe I should just take a year off and let the, uh, let the airplanes find me again and, and uh, come seek permission for my landing strip. But I have never been short of ideas through my whole life, um, even in childhood. Uh, right now I'm feeling I've worked very hard during the pandemic and I'm kind of ready for a rest. Probably a temporary rest, but a rest nonetheless. Well, that was something that, that I wondered, because um, like, the musical came out, what, 2003? Yes. Uh, and as I was just reading, is the fifth longest, is, as, as of this recording, the fifth longest um, running show on Broadway, having beat out Les Mis recently, uh, and presumably is going to, to beat out the other, the other four, uh, and, then, and then we'll be the number one. Um, so somewhere in there, somebody has to have come to you at a party or, or anywhere else and said, hey, why not write more musicals? Why, 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 why the children's books? Why not exclusively focus on, on, on these big deal musicals? Has that ever been a temptation for you? Or is it your love of children's books so deep that you, that you wanted to come back to this? Well, that's a really good question, Rob. And uh, the truth is that if I were merely a writer for commercial benefit, commercial gain, I would do nothing but write books for adults and write books that could be converted into other media, films or, or TV um, or, or Broadway musicals, uh, if I could be assured that would happen. Because the filthy lucre that comes from that kind of experience is uh, just universes in a different galaxy than what one earns even from a very successful children's book. But I don't do that because I really admire the reading audience of children. I really admire the way that they throw themselves into 
the, the, the books that they cherish. I really admire how demanding they are as an audience that if they don't like something, they'll pitch it and they'll go back to playing computer games or running outside to you know, see where their dog went or, or what have you. You really have to work as a writer hard to keep a child audience engaged. And I think that hard work is worth it because it, if a child takes your book to his or her heart, that child will own your book for the rest of his or her life. Boy, what a great, what a great challenge. What a great accomplishment to do that. Uh, now, I'm going to ask you a question, Rob. I'm going to say, when you were eight or 10 or 12, I can imagine that some author gave you their work. I mean, because, you know, in the library or in a bookstore or in a scholastic book club or however it is that you got your reading material when you were that age. And you loved it and took it to your heart. And it is part of you to this day. Do you remember that experience? Do you remember which book or books did that for you? Because here you are, after all, talking about literacy, <laughs> you know, halfway on your life. It has to have happened. It's a fair assumption. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, Ramona Quimby, age eight, by Beverly Cleary, sucked me in in second grade. Uh, and I never looked back. And then shortly after that, I discovered The Twits by Roald Dahl. Uh, and then I proceeded to read everything that Beverly Cleary wrote and everything that Roald Dahl wrote. Uh, and I've just, as we record this, sent off a manuscript to an editor that is my most raw doll-like manuscript. So it's me trying to get back to what I love most as a child. Uh -huh. Well, then you make, you, make, you, you, you make a very good case for what I'm trying to say, that, that writing for children has its own benefits and, it, and its own rewards that are, they, well, they can be, they can be um, you know, you can be commercially successful. I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not looking down my nose on that. Um, and I've had very good luck with children's books too. But all I'm simply saying is few people go into the arts because they want to make a lot of money. If they happen to make money, that's a side benefit. Most people go into the arts because they can't stand to do anything else. They can't stand not to. Um, they have to make things or crumple up and die. Some of us just have to make things. That's how we're, that's how we're constructed. I have to make stories and if I'm not making stories, then I have to make pictures or songs, or sometimes I have to cook or make the bed or make lists of what I want to do next year. I have to make things all the time. It's what gives me pleasure. And I love making stories, but I love making stories for children because they care about them so much. Well, so going back to when you're somewhere between eight and 11, who's the, who are the authors that switch you on? They're fairly well-known ones, uh, with maybe one or two exceptions. Uh, and I used to make lists of my favorite books when I was this age. Um, and they would change a little bit through the years, but the top 10 were, were pretty, uh, pretty consistent and pretty popular. For instance, once I discovered the Narnia Chronicles, uh, one or more of the Narnia books was always on the top of the list or near the top of the list. I loved A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lengel when I got to it in fifth grade. I loved Harriet the Spy by Louise Fitzhugh, which I also got to in about fifth grade. Uh, 
Indeed, Harriet the Spy is the only one of my favorite books from childhood that was not a fantasy. I really loved reading magic books, as I called them. But Harriet the Spy was a realistic story about a child who wanted to be a writer and, wanted, and therefore she needed to spy on the world in order to know how it worked. And uh, I so admired that book that I took some clues from Harriet, the character, about how to be a spy and how to be a writer. And I started my own journal when I was in sixth grade. And here I am, who is it 50 years later, just almost 50 years later. And I'm, I still am keeping that same journal. I have never stopped keeping a journal thanks to Harriet the Spy, a way of looking at the world, looking at myself and seeing how I fit. But one or two other of my favorite books, I loved Half Magic by Edward Eager. Uh, and I also loved a book that I wonder whether any of your um, uh, attendees will ever have heard of. It's a little less popular now than it was when I was a kid. It's called The Diamond in the Window by Jane Langton. It's a magic story, a fantasy, set in an old Victorian house in the town of Concord, Massachusetts. And it's, it's simultaneously a dream adventure and a treasure hunt and a story of being hunted and endangered by a bad item in, in, uh, in the world. Uh, and I loved it to pieces. I loved it to pieces. Indeed, here I am in Concord, Massachusetts, many years later. I loved it so much, I actually met the author and she lived near here and I moved to Boston and not, not so I could live near her, but because I was enamored by that book. And now I live in Concord, Massachusetts and have raised my family here all because of something that I read when I was in fifth grade or fourth grade. So when you uh, when you meet your hero, that's a good idea, or, or you're shaking all over, and it's and she's um, and she says something terrible to you, and you're crushed forever. <laughs> that does that does happen, and meaning no disrespect to to that venerable woman who now uh, who now has passed away, she did once say something to me that she didn't mean unkindly, but that I took to be a kind of a brush off, and I was crushed, and. Uh, Later on, when I I told her about it, she reared up and said, oh, no, no, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. She was using a kind of social convention um, that I didn't understand. I was terribly earnest and from a different socioeconomic bracket, and I just didn't know. I didn't know that she was speaking casually, and I thought she was, uh, she was saying, don't, you know, enough of this. Don't bother me anymore. Um, so that was crushing, but you're young. You have to learn nuance. You have to learn the conventions of conversation and they differ from, from generation to generation and from place to place in the world. I grew up in New York. So how Boston Yankee people were was a very different um, way from how upstate New Yorkers were. And I had to learn. Something uh, that I had uh, learned about you in, in preparing for this interview is that when you were younger, one of seven children, right. you only got to watch one half hour of television a week and it, it had to be voted amongst all seven of you. Is that right? Yes, that's true. That's how, that's how I tell the story. In truth, uh, because my older brother was old enough, uh, actually, not to be living at home, 
you know, the, the story is fudged a little bit and made more compact. But the, the general gist of it was, yes, my parents were very, um, uh, very strict about TV, especially when we were in uh, grade school up until about middle school. They didn't admire it very much. Um, we had we had a TV. They watched it, but they thought it was basically potentially brain rot. And so we had to re we had our our diet of TV really limited. Uh, we had homework and we had the library, and the library was our liberation and was our, if you will, our salvation from tedium, from boredom. If you could go to the library, you could go anywhere. Um, and it was a replacement for TV in a way. And in my mind, it was not, not such a bad idea, although I did feel impoverished as a kid. And I felt, you know, I didn't have the same goods that everybody else in the, in the neighborhood had. Yes, you missed F Troop. It's, it's tragic. But I'm assuming <laughs> <laughs> that that's part of the ways you maybe go about building a writer just a little bit if, uh, if, if, if you're encouraged to go and seek out, because they didn't censor your books, right? You could read anything you wanted to read? Absolutely. They did not censor the books and nor did librarians, although I wasn't interested in reading adult books until I got to be, you know, late middle school. Uh, but you're right. Um, the full range of the library uh, and, and furthermore, I had an ample supply of pencils, pens, crayons, and paper. So I always consider that the very act of being bored is a stimulus to the imagination. Because when you're bored, you can, you can either go to sleep and be depressed or you can do something about it. And if all you have is paper and pencils, then you make up a story, or I did, make up a story, make up a play, make up, a, make up a, a sonnet, make up something, just keep yourself awake and alive and attached to the world. And that's what I did. Do you know, Rob, there's a, um, a book called, I think it's called Outliers by the, by the author Malcolm Gladwell. And he's a New Yorker writer, and he writes books on concepts. In this particular book, he, he takes to task the notion that some people succeed more than their peers. And he asks himself the question, why? He comes up with a number of, um, a number of different theories. But one of the ones that he comes up with at the very beginning is to ask the question, why say did the Beatles, who were one of only, they were one of, you know, more than a handful of, of groups trying to make it in pop music in the early 60s, why did they rise to the top so fast and so hard when other groups that starting out were, were just as good didn't. And his thesis, why it happened, he says, could be that when they went to Germany, when they were just starting out to live there for a few months and play some gigs, they were supposed to play like two and a half hours a night, maybe. Uh, and so they were going to rehearse during the day and play at night in, in this bar. Turns out that they were supposed to split the bill with another group 
and the other group had a change of plans and never showed up. So the Beatles ended up, either they played two sets a night or they played every night, every night for, I don't know how many months or maybe maybe a year or something. Uh, what, what Gladwell is saying is that they had twice the amount of airtime that any other group of, of you know, just starting out could possibly hope to have. And they improved at a faster rate because they did nothing else. They, they just threw themselves into it. By the time they got back to London and started recording albums, he said they had put in 10,000 hours of work perfecting uh, their, their, their skills as a, as a group. Similarly, he says, somebody like Bill Gates, Bill Gates went to Harvard, I think, and dropped out, came home. His parents, instead of throwing him out on the street, let him take over the garage. His father worked uh, at a Southern California uh, computer department or some, some business that had um, access to monitors and wires and such. And Bill Gates worked in that garage night and day for years, teaching himself the basics of what would become a certain kind of computer program that, that would give us the personal computer and Microsoft. Uh, Gladwell says, this was 10,000 hours of self-instruction. And by the time he was 22, he was one of the most knowledgeable people in the world about this kind of thing. Now, I'm not comparing myself to the Beatles and I'm not comparing myself to Bill Gates or to Yasha Heifetz or to Mozart or to any, any genius, any breakout outlier person who did enormous things at, at early ages. But there is one similarity and that's what I'm, the long arc of, uh, of my disquisition is about. By the time I got out of high school, I am quite sure that I had put in 10,000 hours of story writing on my own steam, without supervision, without anybody prompting, without anybody even looking over my shoulder and saying, well done, Gregory. I just love to do it so much that I wrote stories nonstop from fourth grade to, to 12th grade. And by the time I was done, I had, and I still have, stacks and stacks of manuscript, handwritten manuscript, with drawings in them, thousands of pages of them. And I'm sure I, I, I touted it up. I'm sure it's about 10,000 hours worth of work that I did as a hobby as a kid through grade school, middle school and high school. So by the time I got into college and I had my first idea for a novel, I was ready to write it because I had been, in a, I had been an apprentice to myself and to all the great writers that I read and loved and whose books inspired me. And so I was ready to go at the age of 22. You won't say it, so I will. Gregory McGuire is the John Lennon of fiction. So <laughs> that, that's out there now. Um, I was thinking earlier that on paper, this, this looks like a, a straightforward path because you 
Um, you, you, you go, you're schooled at Catholic institutions, you get a BA in English from the State University of Albany, and then an MA in Children's Literature from Sims College, and a PhD in English and American Literature from Tufts University. So you're focused right away, and then what, in uh, what 1979, uh, you become a professor and a co-director at the Simmons College Center for the Study of Children's Literature. So that looks like a relatively straight path from there to you and I talking tonight about your 40 books over 44 years. It, it appears like a, like a fairly straight line. I don't know if it felt if the experience was, was quite like that. When do you know that children's literature is not the only thing you want to write? Obviously, there's plenty of adult novels, but that that is going to be your focus. Well, I, I, um, I might have been dedicated, but I wasn't particularly smart. Um, and I mean, I was good in school, but. I, when I uh, wrote a book, uh, when I was, I got the idea when I was in high school and I wrote it sort of in the summer between college years uh, because I was bored. I had a job of being a film projectionist at an amusement park and I would get the film going and then I would have 25 minutes before I had to change the, you know, the reels and then another 20 minutes before I had to Turn, take it off and turn the lights on in the theater so everybody could uh, move out and then do it again. I, mean, I did it four times a day. And in those, all that time, I had to stay there. I had to stay in the theater in case the, the film broke or something. Uh, so I would sit on the stairs in outside the projection booth with a notebook. And I wrote my first novel that summer, you know, just in, in a stairwell at an amusement park because I was all alone in the theater, I was the only one there. And uh, uh, the thing is, I might have been industrious and I might have been um, inventive, but I was, I was not the brightest banana in the bunch because this novel was a kind of magic story and the main character was about 12 and it was a chapter book but I didn't even really consider that it was a children's book. I just thought it was, I was a grown up and I was writing a book about a 12 year old boy who was having magic adventures. And so when it was, you know, I was in college and I looked at it and I thought, well, this is, this is, it may not be good, but there are books published that are not as good, you know, things I've seen in print so maybe this is good enough to publish. How, how do I know? I won't know until I try. So I spent about a year typing it up because I wasn't a very good typist. And uh, I did not keep a carbon copy. And this was before the days of computers. So I typed up, you know, there was only one copy of pages. And that was it. The whole book was there. And uh, I sent it off to um, the publishing to the adult department of a publishing house. And the adult department didn't turn it down, but they wrote me a letter and said, thank you for your submission of this book. We have sent it to our children's department. And I thought, oh, is it a children's book? Well, of course it was a children's book. It was about a 12 year old boy who was having adventures with a magic lion and, and uh, all the, you know, it was very derivative of my favorite books. Uh, but so as, as I say, you know, I wasn't John Lennon. <laughs> I was the janitor, you know, in the in the scenes. Um, but I did keep my my hand at my work. 
the thing is, once it was sent to a children's uh, publishing house, the children's arm of this publishing house, I then looked back at, at my life and I thought, oh, I guess I always have really loved children's books. And I guess I was writing a children's book without even thinking about it. I mean, there is no no adult material in my in that book, believe me. There was not not much philosophy. There was there was nothing extreme about it. It was a child and his friend and his family having magic adventures and getting a little trouble and, and uh, saving the day at the end. So I guess I always did care about children as readers uh, without even knowing it. Um, but you're right, Rob. Uh, I've had friends who have said to me, you are unusual, Gregory, in that you, do, you did seem to know what you wanted to do really early on and you just, you didn't dither and you didn't dally and you didn't sputter and you didn't, you weren't a dilettante. You didn't try this and try that. You just, you know, pulled up the chair to the nearest coffee table and uh, leaned over and got some paper and started to work. How lucky you are. And it's true, I was lucky. I didn't try, you know, real estate. I didn't try, um, you know, commercial banking. I didn't try selling shoes. I didn't go into the army or the priesthood or any other things I might have done. I just wanted to write stories, so I wrote stories. In a way, that makes me seem, wow, you really knew yourself, didn't you? But in another way, it's like, no, I really only ever had one idea. That was the only thing I <laughs> I was never tempted to do anything else because I couldn't ever think of anything else to do. And that's all I wanted to do. It doesn't seem to have bothered you. <laughs> no, because I loved it. I was sad, you know, in fourth grade when I wrote a story called The Hotel Bomb, I I, I was very delighted with my work and thought, oh, this is good. Now I'll write another one and I'll call it Pearl Harbor. And, you know, so I, I like, I launched myself just by delight, by having pleasure at seeing finished product. How did you get started writing? Uh, um, gosh, I uh, think uh, first grade, I uh, told a story into a tape recorder and played it for the class and everybody really liked it and said, you're good at this. You should write, you should tell more stories. I thought, well, I'll, I'll write them down. And I learned how to use an early Macintosh classic computer just to, to write a story. So I think for some of us, it, it, it comes quite early. It just says, yes, this, this, for whatever reason, this is how your mind works. It bends this way. Right. Come along and we'll, we'll see where this adventure takes us. So um, I, uh, I had, uh, had so many questions and they went right out of my head. <laughs> I'm, 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 a bad, I'm a bad person to interview because I like to hear other people's thoughts on the same subject. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, just, I'm here every week and uh, my God, we, we've only got uh, Gregory McGuire tonight. <laughs> <laughs> this for for now um 
Well, you know what? We should talk a little bit about Crest Watercress. Oh, yes. Uh, which is newly available. Esteemed audience just came out uh, as you're listening to us, or if you're listening to us after the release date. Good news, it's been available uh, for a moment. You can go get your copy of uh, Crest Watercress. Uh, so, true to my word, I promised you that I would not uh, make you sit through me summing up your biography or your book. What does esteemed audience need to know about Crest Watercress? Well, Crest Watercress is a chapter book for uh, kids, I, I hate to say who it's for really. Um, when people ask me at, at bookstores or libraries, they raise their hands and say, well, who is this book for? I mean, one book, this adult novel you wrote four years ago is 220 pages and it's a grown-up book. And this novel, which you published with the children's house is almost 400 pages and it's a children's book. How can we tell the difference? Who, who is they? Who is this for? And who is that for? And I always say, my books are for anybody who likes to read Gregory Maguire books. And all you have to do is read the first four pages of anything and see whether you feel like reading the fifth. If you feel like reading the fifth, then the book is for you. If you don't feel like reading the fifth, then put it aside. It's either for somebody else or maybe it's for you later on, but not right now. So I don't really want to say exactly who it's published for, but I will say you're right. It is published as a children's book by Candlewick Press, and it has some of the most glorious illustrations in it um, that a book has ever um, benefited by. I think if, if I am clear on what you're holding up, you probably have an advanced copy and so the artwork is in is in black and white rather than in yes. color. In the Sorry. in the finished novel, the artwork is in full color. Oh yes, uh, and, and it is just glorious. They're like stained glass windows as chopped up in Equisian art. They're just full of color, shards of color on on every, every fourth page has has an illustration in a two hundred ten page book. So, but what is it about? The Crestwater Crest is the name of a rabbit who at the beginning of the story has to move with her mother and her baby sister out of their private rabbit warren where they've lived happily with their father for a long time across the forest into the bottom basement apartment of an apartment tree. They have to move out of their private home and move into an apartment building, as it were, because their father, the father of the family has disappeared and the mother can't keep the family together on her own without neighbors around to help out in a pinch and to babysit the kids when she has to go out. So they leave their comfortable home, they leave their old life and they move into uh, a place where they don't know anybody else and Cress, the young rabbit, is waiting and hoping that her father will come home and hoping they can go back to their old home. But meanwhile, they're stuck in an apartment tree called the Broken Arms. And they, she, she makes new friends. She meets other tenants of the building. She has lots of adventures. Uh, and that's as far as I'll, that's as far as I'll go as to plot. But I will say this, Rob, I will say that I have written quite a few 
children's books, more children's books than adult books in my time. And a number of them are books that I'm very proud of, particularly What the Dickens, the story of a rogue tooth fairy, uh, which is what it sounds like, a tooth fairy going haywire, uh, and Egg and Spoon, which is, uh, that's the fat 400 page children's fantasy set in uh, turn of the century pre-revolutionary Russia when the czars still ruled the land and Baba Yaga the witch roamed about in her house on chicken legs. Uh, that book incidentally has been optioned by Universal Studios for a movie. Um, much though I love those books, What the Dickens and Egg and Spoon and others of my children's books, I think Crass Watercrass is the book for children with which I'm the happiest. I'm so pleased that I got to write it and so thrilled beyond measure at how beautiful Candlewick Press has been able to make it look. Wow, those are, uh, it's a bold statement. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel that way? I feel that way about every new book is my best book ever. Do you feel that way, or or do you know when you've got Crest Watercrest, this is something really special. I'm going to write my next book, and it will also be nice, but it won't be won't be this moment here that I'm having with, with with this book. I think that you know when you're having a moment. I think I knew I was having a moment with Wicked when I wrote it. I thought this may not work for anybody else, but it's working for me, and I've I've hit I've hit it. I've, I've hit enough of what I tried to do so that I'm, I, I'm not going to retire in embarrassment. I, for me, it's a case of like, to use a metaphor that maybe isn't really apt, but it's a case of how close to the bullseye are you going to get boing, when you shoot an arrow toward a target and you try to write a story that lands exactly where you think it might hit. And it, and the notes that it makes as it soars through the air boom, are all the notes that you hoped it would hit. Um, most of the time, I don't know how you feel, Rob, but most of the time I feel I go, boom, but it goes, and it kind of lands someplace else. I'm usually happy with the surprise of it, but I don't always feel as if I've hit a bullseye. With Crest Watercrest, by the time I reached the end of writing it, I thought to myself, this book achieves about 96% of what I set out to achieve by my own measuring stick. And to me, like, <laughs> I'm, I feel lucky if I hit any, and if, if I achieve anywhere over 50% of what I set out to do. So to hit, so to hit so many marks, at, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not at the beginning of my career. I'm 44 years in. I'm not saying I'm at the end, but I'm closer to the end than I am to the beginning, actuarially speaking. Um, so to hit so many, um, so many wonderful notes and to have it sing as it, as it flies through the air uh, is really gratifying to me. And I don't expect to do it again or not again soon. Uh, but let me turn the question back to you, as I like to do, and say, 
do you know what I'm talking about when I when I say the, uh, the you know you start out with a kind of concept of oh this this is the book I want to write and then you go on and sometimes by the by the end of page two you think oh I haven't got it or I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get there it's not gonna be the magical thing I can envision might be good might be worthwhile but it's not gonna be this wonderful magical thing that is ideal. It's idealized in your mind before you start to write it. Once you start to write it, it becomes real. And then you have to live with the reality of it, which doesn't always measure up to the ideal. Do you know what I mean when I say that? I do, although we should all bear in mind that I am talking to the John Lennon of fiction and I am <laughs> uh, not even quite the Ringo uh, yeah. of fiction. <laughs> um, you've got about, uh, what, 30, 32 books on me? Um, but um, I do feel with every project that it is simultaneously, depending on when you ask me the process, it is simultaneously the most brilliant thing I have ever written and the worst thing I have ever written that's just terrible and I should I should bury it and be done with it and no one ever needs to see it, just depending on, on when you ask me. So I've learned not to trust me, just to go with where the story needs to go and then step away from it until I've got some perspective. Uh, but as much as you're ever going to get, it's like if you're, it's like your baby, you know what I'm talking about. It, it, it's always going to be beautiful to me, no matter if, if the world thinks it's ugly. I, I, I still care about it. <laughs> no, and that, that's fair enough. And certainly there is always a, a moment, even in Cress, even in Wicked, there's always a moment or many moments where I think this is the worst piece of garbage that any human being since the invention of language has ever come up with. And then there are other moments where you come to the end of a paragraph and you feel like you could lift out of your body and soar in the, in the air for about nine feet up above the grass because you're so happy with having caught something of what you were trying to catch in that particular moment. Both those are realities of the experience of writing, I think. Um, normally you come down to earth and you know, real life is somewhere in between. I suppose, you know, to go back to Cress, it's just that when I come back down to earth, I'm still more thrilled with what what I think Cress has achieved uh, and with who Cress, Water Cress is as a, as a trembling little rabbit coming upon squirrels and nasty skunks and scary big bears and uh, foxes who eat rabbits, etc. I'm really, I'm really happy with uh, how she engages with her life and who she seems to be at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book too. And we haven't mentioned my favorite character, which is the chinchilla, but maybe esteemed audience will discover the chinchilla on, on, on their own. <laughs> really got a kick out but of it. This, this is one. This is one of those. Uh, this is one of those uh, moments in writing, and I bet you know it too. And it has a parallel in Wicked too, I have to say, where the author doesn't really know what's going to happen until that until the, the sentence. Um, and I don't think it gives too much away to say that Cress runs into a skunk, uh, and the skunk is sort of hoity-toity and putting on ears. And Crest is a humble garden variety rabbit. And the skunk is preening and saying she's going to the opera. And she says to Cress and her and her 
workaday mother, uh, you know, notice my notice my lorgnette, which is that the kind of glasses what we wear them on a stick. Ooh, I see. Uh, you can almost go like this. Oh, I see. Um, notice my lorgnette, says the skunk. Notice my chinchilla, and she pumps up her collar. And at that moment, the chinchilla, you know, lifts its head off her collar and says, hi. And I didn't know the chinchilla was going to be alive until it said, hi. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, she's wearing a live chinchilla. This is one of the great things about writing is to, to not to over master your material, you know, to, to, be, to be relaxed with it, to let it be playful with you as you are playful with it. Now I said I had a similar experience to this in writing Wicked, and I will briefly tell you about it. When I was writing Wicked, the first draft, I had gotten <coughs> past the Green Witch's birth in her early childhood, and I was starting the next section uh, in which the girl called Galinda, came to be known Glinda later, is on a railroad, in a railroad car on her way to university. She's going off to college and she's traveling alone in a railway car. And she's looking at herself out there. She's a little bit like Lady Agatha. She's looking at herself out the mirror, thinking how beautiful she is. And she's enjoying how how pretty she is in her in the reflection. She's not looking at the landscape. She's not looking at anything she's never seen before. She's just looking at herself because she's kind of self-obsessed the way some people can be, especially at that age. And uh, there was a line I wrote there saying, I said, Galinda was glad that the old goat um, seated across from her was snoring. She didn't want to talk to anybody. She just wanted to admire herself in the mirror and 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 be the picture of young student on her way to college. Well, that's where I finished the work for the day. And the next day I picked up my manuscript. Now I was writing on the computer. And I always read a few pages beforehand so I can get in the role and remember what the mood is like and what the tone is like and see where I'm going. And I got to that sentence. She was glad that the old goat in the seat across from her was snoring because she didn't want to have to talk to anybody. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, that's not that's not a sleazy old man with cigar ash on his lapel. That's a goat. That's a goat, an animal. And there's an animal in this carriage with her and he's sleeping and he's going to wake up and talk to her. Oh my gosh, I didn't know there were gonna be talking animals in this book and I didn't until that line. Um, and if you go back and read, reread Wicked, you see there's not a word said about talking animals until Galinda's in that train carriage and um, Dr. Dillamond who is who it turns out to be, opens his eyes and asks her where she, what's she doing? Why is she traveling alone? And where is she going? And uh, so that's what I mean about being playful with your ideas. You have to give your subconscious credit for knowing more about everything than you do. You have to hold your material lightly. You have to trust it. It will give you ideas that you didn't know you had, like the chinchilla. It's such a wonderful scene because uh, Galinda immediately puts her foot in her mouth and then that makes me sympathize for her. Like prior to that, I'm not caring for her, but the moment she says something really dumb that's going to come to haunt her, like, oh, I've done that. I, 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Um, was something uh, you'd said, was this, uh, without giving too much away, Crest Watercrest is, is, is quite a bit about emotions and emotional states. And you said, you said that, um, that uh, as, as children were given little guidance as to the schedule or life cycle for, of, our, of our feelings and emotions, we're expected to learn the timetable of moods all on our own. If we're traumatized and who isn't, we can be strengthened when we understand that dark moods may often return, but they will lift again. Uh, Crest Watercrest, through its lighthearted adventures, portrays this dawning realization in a, in a young creature. And we're dealing with some fairly dark stuff. Uh, as you mentioned, we, we open with Papa's gone. Um, and uh, at one point, um, Crest tells a, tells a friend that she hates herself. Uh, Mama is also dealing with with a, with a bit of trauma, obviously. Uh, I think she says that um, something about life not being fair, just taking it for a fact. Just just so you know, life life's never fair. Okay, we'll enjoy your day. Thanks, Mama. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what uh, what was it about dealing with this state of childhood? How much of that did you know? Because you mentioned that you wanna you wanna hit the target. So how much do you know that that's going to be the target going in? And then why are animals the way to approach that subject as opposed to humans? Those are really good questions. And luckily, the first part of it is really easy to answer. Yes, I knew that that, that was uh, what the book was going to be about. Going into it, I knew that it was going to be about the, um, the cyclical nature of strong emotion. I knew that because that's why I wrote the book. I thought the idea first that children, my, my children in two, sort of are taught about moods, taught about anger and rage and disappointment and grief, but they're taught about it in such a way as to think this is something to endure and then you get over it. And they aren't necessarily taught that the anger, grief, rage, disappointment, loneliness, fear are not, even if you survive them, they're not gonna go away. They're actually part of what it is to be alive. They will come back. They will come back and you will survive them again. They get easier to survive the more experience you have with them. But when you're young, when you're really young, you, you know, when you're two years old and your, your parent goes out the door uh, and goes to work, you don't know that they're ever going to come back again and you grieve like they've died because you don't have the experience yet. You have to learn that experience of cyclicality, of the, the cycles of, of moods and, and of things. So I went into Crest Watercrest thinking, this is what it's about. I want to write a story in which a, a, a young character comes to understand that not only are feelings valid, but that they're not one-time experiences. They are recurrent experiences. And this is something that I think isn't much explained. Let's take Charlotte's Web. Charlotte, at the end of Charlotte's Web, spoiler alert for anybody who's never read it, Charlotte the spider passes away, she dies. And Wilbur is in terrible grief, her best friend, her pig friend, He's in terrible grief and mourning, but then he realizes that her egg sac has hatched and he persuades three of her thousands of children 
to stay in the barn and be his friends. And he tells them all about their mother. Well, that's where the story ends. And it's a lovely ending of the story. But what E.B. White doesn't quite want to say is that those spiders have very short lives too. And they will die too. But when one of them dies, Wilbur will be better equipped to deal with it because he has endured and survived the death of Charlotte. That's implied, but it's not said. And I wanted to write a book that said it. And that's part of why I wrote Cress Watercress. And I think I said it successfully and that's part of why I'm happy about it. So the second part of your question was about, but why animals? And I don't know, except that with animals, uh, I feel I could be given the liberty and the license to make almost anything happen to them the way almost anything can happen in a fantasy. I mean, talking animals are a fantasy. You know, animals don't talk to each other, squirrels and mice, and they might live near each other. But as far as I know, they don't have conversations and discuss, you know, the price of beans. Uh, but in, a, in an animal fantasy, in an animal story, animals who have different experiences of, of life can talk to each other. And in a way, a squirrel talking to a rabbit or a rabbit talking to a chinchilla or a chinchilla talking back to the skunk who is wearing her is also a metaphor for how different we all feel when we're young and how we notice our differences as much as if we're different creatures, as if, you know, I'm a squirrel and, and, and you're a wombat, you know, I'm a wombat and you're a snake. Uh, we feel differences very strongly when we're a certain age. And only as we get older do we see that what is similar in us is much greater than what is different in us. But I think that's one of the attractions of writing animal fables is that you can exaggerate the differences um, without having people fighting all the time. So how do you go about deciding who's going to be what animal or is it a decision? Do they, do they come into your mind like the chinchilla and they just are that animal and, and you have to deal with it, deal with them they, out as they are? Pretty much. I, I just, I, I, it's like, I, it's like I put on that movie. I'm back in that, uh, I'm back in that uh, movie theater in the Adirondacks when I was in high school, I put it on the reel and then I set the, I set the machine going and then I sit in the back row with my notebook and take notes. I don't really, I don't really know what's going to happen much. I just know that the reel said the emotional life of children and I put it on and I get, I get a difficult moment going in the beginning of the story. And then I just watch and write down what I see happening. And, and so I don't, I don't make a, a decision. I will say that there's one character, um, uh, the, the bear, the bear who loves honey. And he's, um, his name is Tunk, T-U-N-K. And the reason his name is Tunk, this is one of the few things that is related to my real life, is that when one of my children was, was small, he once said the word Tunk. He just said it, Tunk. And I loved the sound of it. And I thought, how come that's not a sound in the English language? Tunk, Tunk. It's like throwing a stone in a pond. Tunk, Tunk. I just, I just loved it. And so I started to say it all the time. 
he never said it again. He said it precisely once. And I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't make it into a family word, no matter how many times I would say, hey, Tunk, let's go to the store. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't make him embrace it or ever say it again. So finally, he's now 24. Finally, when I was writing Crestwater Crest, I thought, I've got to bring Tunk into the language. I've been living with it for, you know, 20 years. I, I, I want other people to be able to say, Tunk. <laughs> Well, I um, watched our time and it's, it's, it's phone by, where did it go? Um, I, I do have a couple of other burning questions. I got to make sure I get out. One I wanted to make sure I asked because you have dealt both with your, your own world. Um, to the best of my knowledge, Crest Watercress is entirely, entirely original. Every, everything here is, is a great Ray McGuire original as opposed to Wicked or uh, your book about the Nutcracker, the um, right. Confessions of a stepsister. I said, "A wicked stepsister," yeah. um, where you're playing with IP that we're all somewhat familiar with. Um, how does that change your approach when you've got some responsibility? You know, where you could take Elphaba wherever you want, but sooner or later she's gotta she's gotta end up in front of Dorothy and and, and the characters we love that have come down the Yellowbrook Road. There's you can't change that. You're gonna end up there. Right. Um, how much freedom? Yeah, what, uh, what, what responsibility do you have to the original IP and then how much freedom do you have within that versus something like Crest, Watercrest, where it's all new, you can go anywhere you want? Well, different people would answer that question differently. Uh, if something is in the public domain, uh, like The Wizard of Oz was when I started writing Wicked, um, then I could have done anything. I didn't have to bring Dor uh, the, the witch back to Dorothy. The witch could have killed Dorothy with a shotgun. <laughs> And that's how the book could have ended. Um, there would be nothing stopping me from doing that if that's what I wanted. But in fact, because, because of the reason that I write, one of the reasons that The Wizard of Oz intrigues me at all, or Peter Pan or The Nutcracker or The Grim Fairy Tales, is that I, I want to honor the stories and I want to honor the impulses of the original writers. So I, I feel a personal obligation to stay within a certain, certain parameters, certain barriers. I can change, I can make changes. I can throw out things that don't mean anything to me. I can create shades of meaning. I can introduce new characters, um, but I will try to stick to the basic framework of the original story so that one could take like an acetate overlay. Like if you have a, a, a a high school biology textbook and you have the endocrine system and then you flip over the acetate overlay and you put on the circulatory system and then you put on another acetate overlay and you have the, the, the muscular skeletal system. So I try to put on new systems, but I try to keep to the same basic form and framework of the original. That's the way I like to work. Other people might work differently. Uh, on the other hand, when I write Crest Watercrest or, or other books I've done, which are entirely original, I am em emboldened to do anything that I want and I am beholden, sorry about the noise, Cinderella's bells, um, I am beholden to what, this, what the meaning of the story requires in order that the meaning land with as much oomph as possible. Those are my only regulations. Um, I could have 
at the end of Crest Watercrest, I could have brought Alphaba in, <laughs> and I could have brought in, you know, the the president of Bolivia. I could have brought in an alien spacecraft, you know, that was going to take all the animals away to another um, planet. Uh, I wanted to stay within the parameters that I had set up for myself, but I wanted the reader to get something that I intended to give him or her, uh, and that has. Uh, that wanting, that delivery, that inclination to deliver the goods is part of my instruction and, and, part, and, and they're self-imposed borders that I put down for myself. And we talked briefly, you don't do it exactly one-to-one, -one, obviously, where you switch from children's book to adult books, but you do switch back fairly often as do I. Do you find that that allows you to, that if you've been writing for, for children with relatively um, shorter chapters, shorter prose, a lot more, I, 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 I don't know how you feel. I think writing for children is much more difficult than writing for adults. Yeah, um, do you find that if you've been writing one for a while, you've, you've developed a hunger for the other? Uh, and then when you go the other, you can, you can develop a hunger once again for children's books for a while? I think that is true. I think I do develop hunger. And the same goes back and forth about uh, writing from, from different genders, that if I've written two books in a row uh, from the, where the main character is a female, then I kind of have a hunger to write about a character who's a male. Um, uh, I, I, um, I think that, you know, the fun of writing prose is partly the fun of tuning your, your internal dial to different radio stations. And the station that is giving you prose for adults has a different tone and it sits in your ear in a different way. And sometimes you wanna to listen to Schoenberg and other times you wanna to listen to the Go-Go's, you know? <laughs> and you kind of go back and forth that you get an appetite for the other when you've had too much of one. Speaking of listening to music while you write, uh, while you're writing the sequels to Wicked, did you listen to some of the uh, the, the musical whilst writing? No, I don't listen to any music while I'm writing. And that's because I am a little musical. Uh, I mean, I, my, I am a little musical. No, I mean, I, <laughs> I, am, I have musical training. And so it is hard for me to uh, think as deeply in language as I need to think if there's music on in the background. Now, sometimes I will find a musical theme or a musical composer whose work seems to be on target with the mood of the piece that I'm writing next. And so I might listen to that, you know, before I get started uh, during the morning or as I'm cleaning up my study at the end of the day, just to continue to steep myself in, in the same ambiance, but never while I'm actually writing. Ah, and then esteemed audience knows I have to ask because I ask everybody who comes on this show, Gregory McGuire, have you ever seen a ghost and or a flying saucer? I have never seen a flying saucer. Um, although once I saw a picture of an angel in the clouds that was so like an angel. The clouds were shaped in such a way with, with trailing wings that I almost ran my car 
off um, <laughs> off the highway. Uh, and I don't think I've ever seen a ghost. I will say that once or twice in my life, I have felt in my empty home that there was another presence. And it was always beneficent, not, not, not dangerous or scary, um, but definitely real. That is to say, it felt definitely real. I'm not saying it was definitely real. I'm saying I had that feeling, I had the experience that I was sharing the space with um, an entity that that meant me uh, great joy and and charm and not harm. Uh, but that could have just been the feel a feeling. It could have just been I had a better night's sleep than usual, or the light was a certain way that brought a certain happiness up into my heart, and uh, and it felt like I was being given a blessing and that somebody was there to bless me. And I can't not ask about Oprah, but I'll keep it very brief. Uh, because you and your family were featured on Oprah, obviously, Wicked Opens, you're there. You're going places. I've seen you in multiple interviews. They, they, they have to get used. Okay, dad's, dad's a pretty famous person. Fine, whatever. Yep. Um, I, I imagine they're not starstruck <laughs> when they're around dad. Yep. Um, but after the whole family is on Oprah, what's that like afterwards? I'm assuming the kids at school are like, oh, my God, I saw you and your, your dad's on Oprah. Um, does that change or are you five minutes of fame and then, and then it's over? Five minutes of fame and then it's over three minutes of fame. Uh, they are, um, my kids are very attracted to the fact that sometimes I can introduce them to famous people. Not always, but sometimes I was able to introduce my son to, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda when we went down to see Hamilton because I know him a little bit. And I've had an invitation to the White House and I brought my daughter, you know, to a Christmas party there once, was able to introduce her to the president and his wife. Um, and of course, we go to the Broadway and you see Adina Menzel and Kristen Chenoweth who treat my kids like they're, they're nieces and nephews. Um, you know, that, that kind of stuff is all very hot for them. But me, uh, yesterday's toast that fell butter side down on the floor. Who cares? <laughs> Lin-Manuel Miranda's got to be stroking his uh, chin and thinking, hmm, fifth longest running show on Broadway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The rights to Crest Watercrest. Maybe we can, we can get some rapping rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear it. I can hear it now. <laughs> Mr. McGuire, you've been so generous with your time, and this has gone every bit as well as I hoped it would and, and beyond. This has been just absolutely lovely, uh, and you're going to keep writing, so please come back anytime. Uh, for tonight, my final question is always some variation of if you could go back to the start of your writing career, middle, wherever would have been a good spot for you, and give yourself some advice that would have made a difference and made easier your path and might make easier the paths of all the writers who are watching or listening to us right now, what would you go back and say? Wow, what a great question. Um, I'm, I, I might surprise you um, by saying this, but it is something I've thought about. I had a lot of success, relatively speaking, very young. I mean, I got my first book accepted for publication and, and, and published by a very um, significant publishing house when I was 24, what I would say to my 24 year old is work harder 
don't think just because you got published early that that means you're good. Um, you have a lot to learn and work harder. I actually think for me, if I had been rejected more at the beginning, I might have improved faster and become a better writer. Um, but, you know, can't change history. But I, I would say, don't rest on your laurels. If you happen to have some luck, keep digging, keep turning over the soil, keep trying new things, keep trying to make yourself um, stronger, keep thinking, keep reading, keep pushing, 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 because there are always new um, challenges ahead and you need to be beef yourself up, be strong enough to meet them. That is the perfect note to end on. Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? Well, I do have um, a website, www.gregorymaguire.com. I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm not as easy to follow on Facebook because uh, various reasons. Um, but I am on Instagram too, <laughs> whatever Instagram is, Gregory Maguire, I guess. I, it, my, my daughter runs it for me. so <laughs> And I don't post there very often, but sometimes I do. So Instagram uh, or, or my uh, website would be the, probably the, the ways to check. As always, esteemed audience, for interviews with authors, literary agents, and all the world's best people like Gregory Maguire, head to middlegradeninja.com. Download your free copy of Banneke Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It will change your life. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Thank you.